A number of years ago, um, I was an intern in Colorado Springs at a church there, and of course the church's name was Covenant Presbyterian Church, because that's obviously the best name for a church. And a young woman in the church, uh, in the youth ministry, was was wanting to share her faith with a friend, and she was asking me for advice. And um, I told her what I'm about to tell you, and she did it. I said, what, what is your friend like? What does she want to read? So before thinking through what is the best way for you to share your faith with her, and of course the best way is when someone's asking, um, but she was looking for a book. You know, like we think if we ha- some of us think if we have the right book, it'll all go great. That's me, by the way. Uh, when I travel, if I don't have the right book, if I'm talking to a friend about Jesus, a specific problem, I'm, I'm confident that there's probably a book. Another pastor friend of mine and I used to joke that there's the, the awkward pastor who only has three books that he keeps on him at all times. And so for whatever problem, there's this book or that book. Anyway, what I said to my friend was, what's your friend reading? What does she like? Well, it turns out she likes uh, The Fountainhead. And um, what's the other one? By Ayn Rand. Atlas Shrugged. Thank you. And so my friend ended up reading over a thousand pages of philosophy in order to then talk to her friend about what she believes. So she started with, where's her friend coming from? So you have a friend who's not a follower of Jesus, and you have considered sharing your faith with them. And maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But here's the question I want you to consider. Do you know what they're reading? If you don't, you're actually not ready to share with them yet. That doesn't mean you shouldn't. I'm not going to go so far as to say don't share with them yet, but I am going to say you're not ready. You have another friend who is a follower of Jesus or used to claim to be a follower of Jesus, and they've stopped attending church, and you know where they are in terms of reading and even what they watch. A lot of your friends don't read, right? You have friends that don't read. What do they watch? What music do they listen to? Where are their... Where do they spend their extra time? Doing what? Thinking about what? I was so impressed with this 17-year-old who read thousands of pages of neo-humanist philosophy and respectfully read it and respectfully dialogued with her friend. And then they read Mere Christianity together and her friend became a follower of Jesus. Partly because she was so respectful in her approach, mostly because she was doing it as a friend. I don't know if I want to say most ministry begins with friendship or all good ministry begins with friendship. It's somewhere in between, probably. We're looking at Acts chapter 17 this, this morning, one of my very favorite uh, chapters in all of Scripture because of um, some unforeseen parts of the missionary journey of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And the first part is them reasoning in the synagogues in a city called Thessalonica. It's fun to say. Um, That's one of those, if you see it in Greek, you'll be tempted to believe you could read it, because it it looks just like the way we would spell it. And uh, one of the things that happens in Acts chapter 17 is it mentions that Paul is reasoning in the synagogue three different Sabbaths, Um, But they were there for a long time, and they started a church there. That's how we have a couple of letters to the Thessalonians. It says that Paul was explaining to 
the God-fears about how Jesus had to uh, suffer and die. Perhaps he was using Isaiah 53 or Zechariah 12 or, or 13 or Psalm 22. But what I want to point out, the reason I'm referencing those is it says that he reasoned with them in the synagogues. It is the same posture that we're going to see in just a little bit with the Bereans and then even more explicitly in the text with the Athenians who were not God-fearers. They were more widely religious. Paul's attitude was respectful, even when he gets upset in the middle of this. Later, he's going to get really upset. He's going to tear some of his clothes, not in this chapter, but in a later chapter. And then he continues to speak with respect as he challenges people about what they believe. So in Thessalonica, he's sharing with people that believe in God that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Messiah had to be, had to suffer and die. And what I want us to also notice about this, in addition to his posture, is that he's reminding us that the faith, we, we talk so much about the work of Christ because the work of Christ is how we're reconciled to God. And yet this faith began before the work of Christ. And that's certainly not the end point. We're not in the end. We're in between Acts 4 and 5. Or perhaps Acts 3 and 4, depending on how you understand the story of Scripture. But as he explains, I'm looking at verse 3 in chapter 17, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This is to the Thessalonians. I want to remind you that this religion has history that's verifiable. I want to remind you that this religion has thousands of years of story and of miracle and of text and of God's pursuit of us. We talk about the work of Christ because it is what reconciles us to God, and yet it is thousands of generations of history, of miracle, of text that function interdependently. So Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Thessalonica because they are uh, persecuted there, as happens throughout the book of Acts for different reasons, and I'm not going to get too into that particular persecution because then they go to the Bereans. Have you heard of the Bereans? I don't know if you're familiar with Eastern Greece or Acts chapter 17, but there, the way it's described by Luke is, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, I'm in verse 11, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. So there's a spectrum, right? And there's a spectrum in your life also of men and women who believe, but don't go to church, men and women who believe and who attend and are engaged in church, people who don't believe very actively, very thoughtfully, people who don't believe and they're aggressive about it. So the Thessalonians not only persecute Paul, Silas, and Timothy there, they come to Berea and get them to leave Berea. It is interesting to note that the Bereans were very interested to know if these things were true. You can still visit that city. I was, in, I was doing some historical research to find out if there's a lot of archaeological evidence for um, the text that we have, and it's, it's, it's different than that, like, than a city like Ephesus that has been destroyed 
now, and it's in ruins. Berea is still there. It's, it has a new name now. And historians just loop the Bible in to the historical record of the story of the city. Some people believe that Onesimus was the first bishop of Berea. Remember Onesimus? He's the freed slave Paul wrote to uh, his former owner, asking him to release him very subtly. You have to read the text with a little subtlety. Paul explains Christ to God-fearing Jews in Thessalonica and Berea and to those that are considering the gospel. Some of you know me better than others. Um, Not feeling great today. Having trouble stringing some of the words together as I've written them, so I appreciate you bearing with me, which you're already doing, but if you're wondering, if you're sitting there wondering, does Matt feel all right today? No, he doesn't. So if you don't want to shake my hand after church, I'll understand. Paul's explaining Christ in these two cities, and then because of persecution, he ends up going to Athens. And I want to read this text because it's a phenomenal story in and of itself. It's important to the growth of the early church and the way that the Holy Spirit was moving throughout the Mediterranean. And it is a beautiful way of being in the world amidst religious skeptics and irreligious skeptics. Picking up in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Some people speculate that you could have found over 500 statues of gods in Athens. Around 542 is what I read. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. The reason they say plural is because the way that Christians talk about the Trinity is challenging, both to our minds and imaginations and to others when we're attempting to explain the religion. That's why he said divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. If that sounds a little negative to you, I think it was. I think Luke was not impressed with the Athenians. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, like some of our friends, who actually understand what we believe, don't profess faith, and find it quite challenging. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So many things are happening in every chapter of the book of Acts. I don't know if your Bible has those pictures of his first and his second and his third missionary journey, but they don't look very linear. And it's because of the internal strife that happens throughout the book of Acts, arguments between the early followers of Jesus because they did church imperfectly also. External persecution, sometimes for religious reasons, like here. Sometimes the persecution has more to do with the uh, local commerce. Sometimes it's political. We see all of that happening in Acts chapter 17 early. Yet another statement meant to be negative is now quoted all the time. So the first one was in Antioch. They started calling them Christians. That was a pejorative negative term. That was redundant. It was a negative term by them, and we still use it today. Similarly here, they say these men who are turning the world upside down, and they're saying that to incite people to kick them out of the city. And yet, if the gospel is true, then that is the very thing that Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing by telling people about Jesus, that he rose from the dead, assuring us that the story of God is true. Paul summarizes going back to Genesis through one man. He began the nations of the world. Summarizes uh, what we would call common grace, that people have a, a sense of God even if they don't know anything about him. And then the culmination of the story from our vantage point being Jesus. You remember at the beginning of verse 16 and 17 that Paul's angry? You get angry with your friends? When you see that they're hurting themselves, you get angry with the culture about different things that it supports or fails to support. In Paul's anger, he was irritated. In his irritation, he still spoke winsomely with care and respect. This is a model for us. This is how we interact with our friends. This is how we interact with our family. This is how we interact with our church family. This is how we interact with the culture. It doesn't mean we don't challenge what we believe to be idolatrous and destructive in the culture. It also it means we do challenge it, but we do so with winsomeness and respect. Paul wasn't always that way. He had a sharp disagreement with Barnabas. He's going to tear his clothes later when he's mad at some people, and then he's going to come back to them with a tone of grace and kind of an apology. Did you notice the quotes? Do you know what those quotes are from? Does your Bible say at the bottom? Does it have a little footnote who he's quoting? Not Christians. He's not quoting the Old Testament. He's reading their poets and their philosophers and seeing where their poets and their philosophers reflect the image of God and reflect their longing to know God and to be known by him. And he's doing so respectfully, not mocking. 
He saw in their stories, in their gods, even in their poets, and he thought that their gods, by the way, were demonic. And yet, when he's speaking with the men and the women in Athens, he's doing so respectfully and kindly in order to then challenge them to believe in a real God who doesn't need a house because he's God, who showed up and looked just like a man because he was a man at the same time was God proving all this and giving assurance to us historically and to our faith when he rose from the dead trying to summarize Paul's way of summarizing it before the Athenians so Paul's approaching the philosophers and he's doing it on their terms he's affirming the good about their approach even as he's irritated by the idolatry of the city even as he believed he says in other, in other sections of the book of Acts and in his letters that those things were demonic. He still saw in people a desire to worship as good. So he's affirming the good desire even while challenging their belief system. That's how we are supposed to interact with our own doubts, with our own questions, and also with the questions of the religious skeptic in our family or friend group, with the one that is irreligious, Part of the reason this is such a, a favorite text for me is this is, um, I, there are strands of Christian faith that say we reject all of that, meaning music or film or stories or poetry, unless it's explicitly Christian. And there are strengths to that strand of Christianity. But I like this one. I like the one where we enter the story and we pay attention and we see where there's nobility. If your parents, if your child is listening to music and you're concerned about it, go through the lyrics. Don't just burn it. Maybe you should burn it. But don't burn it first. You want to read it and find out where's the good desire, even if it's just the beat. Well, music's good. God created us to enjoy that. The TV show that scares you. Where in that story is a good desire that comes from the image of God in every human. Even as Paul's challenging them to believe in a real God who actually exists, who sent his son Jesus, who will eventually judge. I feel like he got to the judgment part pretty quickly. But he was going for it, letting them know, like, this is all going to be judged. So that family member or that friend that you're longing for them to trust Christ or they trust Christ but you're longing for them to come back to the church you know what they're reading you know what they're watching you know what kind of music they like if you don't then I hope that you find that out not as an agenda but because you are their friend because most if not all of good ministry begins with friendship And then, in the same style as Paul, we come alongside them knowing what they believe and think, and we honor it. Then, challenge. 
I think Acts 17 is a beautiful picture of being in the world amongst religious skeptics and irreligious skeptics, pointing out that the gospel of Jesus is not only good news, so much more firm than the religions of men. Did you catch that? Like, Paul's being pretty subtle, maybe a little ironic, pointing out that God doesn't need a house because he's God. So it's good news that God is not a human construct. It's also good news because it's true. It's historically verifiable. And this is why Christianity is so difficult to explain to a person that, that doesn't know anything about it to begin with. Because they're like, okay, is it, is it morals? Am I supposed to be good? No, no, no. But there are morals. But let's, let's, we're not, not going to talk about that first. Is it just spirituality? Is it just uh, kind of a different version of, of yoga where we're, where we're learning how to escape with our mind for a little bit of time and that's comforting? No, there are meditative practices that are good, but it begins in history. Well, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about a religion. Well, it is a religion, but it's a religion that's true. It's a religion that has history and the supernatural and a text all at the same time. And that's a lot to take in, which is why some mocked Paul and some have mocked you for believing it. It's why some said, I'm going to need to consider that. And you have friends right now that are not followers of Jesus that are probably considering it because you have been a good friend to them. And then others will listen and come to faith, recognize the pursuing love of God in their life. I shared last week um, that when I doubt my faith, and what I mean by that is when I'm not sensing the peace, when I'm not sensing the joy, what Paul, Paul describes the kingdom of God as righteousness, joy, and peace. And I'm not sensing those, and I'm wondering, this is the kind of text that comforts me. Because it is where we see the coming together of history, right religion, the power of the Holy Spirit, the proof of the resurrection of Christ in ways that are still written about by those that don't even follow Jesus. This story in Acts chapter 17 is referenced in all sorts of history texts about Eastern Greece. And you're like, I don't care about Eastern Greece, but I do because there were real humans that lived there. And we can trace it back historically. And so then I am more able to rest in my soul, knowing that this is not just good news existentially to my mind and heart and faith. It's also news that is historically verifiable. The Bible is trustworthy. The story of the early church is such a mess. I mean, I told the story of Onesimus in a good way, but that's an imperfect way to raise up a bishop through slavery and having to tell his slave owner to let him go very subtly. I don't know if you've read the book of Philemon. It's very imperfect and that gives me comfort. There's real people. Not writing a religion, but coming to believe that it's true, being guided by the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me?
Father in heaven, for those of us that believe in you and trust you, would you help us to believe more deeply in your pursuing love, in the work of Christ that reconciles us to you, and that we have the Holy Spirit. Give us a sense of that. For those of us that are considering the good news of Jesus, would you come alongside them as they consider? Help them. Give them good friends who will approach them as Paul did, respectfully. And help them as the Bereans to consider whether these things are true. Amen.